Psalm 39 continues the theme of Psalm 38. Though the attacks of his enemies have ceased, David is still suffering physically and emotionally to the point of death. Peering into the face of death, David becomes acutely aware of the brevity of life and the burden of God's chastening hand. And so Psalm 39 is a prayer for relief from chastisement. It would be good for us to remember the words of Proverbs that are repeated in Hebrews. Those whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And so again, we have Psalm 39, a prayer for relief from chastisement. We begin with verses 1 and 2 and David's silence in verses 1 and 2. In verses 3 to 6, we'll see his supplication. And finally, in verses 7 to 13, we'll see his submission. Let's begin with verses 1 and 2. I said, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good and my sorrow grew worse. David has vowed to keep silence. He refuses to sin with his tongue and he says he's going to muzzle or bridle his mouth. And here's the reason for his restraint. And we saw this back in Psalm 38. The wicked are before me. And who were the wicked? Not just his enemies, but his friends and family who had turned their back on him. His friends and family who mocked and derided him. His friends and family who were basically betraying him and a traitor to him. And he says, I kept silence. You know, it would be very easy to verbally respond in kind. It would be very easy to say or to speak something that would not be pleasing to God, and yet we could justify it in our own minds, not before God, but to ourselves, in the sense that, well, they did me evil. They meant evil against me. But we need to be reminded of what Joseph said, though they meant evil against me, God meant it for good. And because even the evil of man may be used for God or by God for our good, that's why we need to guard our mouths. That's why we need to be very careful in what we say. And David here is really portraying his later descendant, Jesus Christ, who when he stood before his accusers was what? Silent. And he opened not his mouth. David doesn't want them to hear his complaint to the Lord. He doesn't want them to hear his confession of sin, so he keeps his mouth silent. And he restrains himself from cursing them. Now notice his supplication, and we could also call this his sorrow, in verses 3 to 6. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Say la. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. While David was silent, while David refused to even speak good or evil, his pain, his sorrow was stirred up. He says that his heart became hot. It was burning within him. His heart was 
burst into a flame like a hot coal. He just had this burning, intense desire within him that he could no longer keep silence. And so his silence turns to speech. And he's not just thinking this internally. Notice he says, I spoke with my tongue. All of a sudden, his silence is broken and his speech comes forth because his pain has become so great that, that it just his heart is just burning and he's engulfed in a torrent of emotion so that he can contain himself no longer. He can no longer keep his mouth silent. And the very questions that have agitated him, he now addresses to the Lord. And what are those issues? Issues of death and life. When he talks about the end in verse 4, he's talking about not a goal, but a definite time period. You can replace the word end there with death. Lord, make me know my death and what is the extent of my days. What was the measure of David's days? The span of his life in this world. Lord, when am I going to die? How long is my life going to be? I want to know so I can know how frail I really am. You know, it's probably a question that's on everyone's mind at some point or another. How long do I have? When's my death date? David's no different than us. These questions are pressing on David, and they're pressing on him as a result of what we saw in Psalm 38. His sin and also his sickness. So in verse 5 and 6, David says, my days are as a hand breath. In other words, he, he basically looks at it the day, how many days he has left, and he measures it with the width of his hand, which basically a hand's breath is measured from the base of the fingers uh, across the hand, which would be about four inches. And, you know, he's basically saying, my life is four inches long. In other words, it's brief, it's fleeting. And really, age is nothing to God. In the, in the scope of eternity, it's just a blip. It's here and it's gone. And that is true for everyone. Life is brief. Whether it's a year or whether it's 101 years. In God's view, it's brief. It's momentary. It's a blip. And that's why we read in James 4.14, What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. That's what uh, David says here. Every man in his best state is but a vapor, but a breath. We're like a shadow. You know, a shadow is here and it moves and it's gone. We busy ourselves in gathering riches, which is futile. Again, this psalm is going to parallel wonderfully to James uh, 4, 13 to 17. But he says, you know, we can heap up riches... But at the end of the day, someone else is going to gather them. And so David summarizes his findings here. The answers to his prayer is this. Human life is frail. We're vapors. We're shadows. And second, he says time is fleeting. Human life is frail. Time is fleeting. We've only got a few hand breaths. And in third, not only is human life frail, and not only is time fleeting, but wealth as a goal is futile. Wealth as a goal is futile. You can spend your days gathering it, but you know what? When you're gone, somebody else is going to spend it. Human life is frail. Time is fleeting. And wealth as a goal is futile. 
Three great principles for us to adopt and live by. Though really, if we, if we would adopt the, those uh, principles, those ideologies, uh, it would probably transform our thinking and our view of how we spend our days and what we do in life. If we realize that life is frail, if we would realize that time is fleeting, and if we would realize that wealth as a goal is futile, it's going gonna, it's gonna to impact what you and I view as important. It's going to impact where we're going to begin to put our resources and how we're going to use our resources. Now in verse 7 to 13, as we draw this psalm to a close, we have some David's submission. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I've become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me. Because of the opposition of your hand, I am perishing. With reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. For I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. David's submission. When David finally acknowledges that his hope is in God, now he's ready to deal with the Lord. He first asked God to deliver him from all his transgressions. What are transgressions? Transgressions are moral violations of God's will. They are acts of rebellion, law-breaking. And he's saying, God, deliver me. That's God, forgive my sin. Free me from the guilt of my sin. Do not let me be subject to the reproach of the foolish. In other words, don't let me just be another victim to those who say there is no God. Show yourself in forgiving me and restoring me to a right relationship. See, the, the, his former friends and, and family, they, they believe that God's not going to listen to him. They, they don't think that God's going to do anything anymore for David because of his sin. But when God forgives David and restores David, guess what? The mouths of the fools will be silenced. In verse 9, David reflects back on what he said in verse 2. He was mute because God did it. God brought the sickness into his life. And he did it as a judgment against David's sin until he was, his sorrow was stirred up. So you literally have sin led to sickness, which led to sorrow, which led to salvation. David sinned. God sent sickness which then caused David to sorrow or repent, which in turn caused God to deliver him or save him. David says, remove your wrath. Remove this plague from me. Now the word plague here is interesting because it can refer to a mark or a spot. And it signifies that whatever disease that God sent upon David uh, was some type of a mark on his skin. Now, many think, based on Psalm 38 and Psalm 39, that it was possible that it was leprosy. And certainly that is legitimate, uh, that it could have definitely been leprosy. It would have definitely, that would have definitely been a sickness that would have caused people to not want to be near him, not want to be around him, want to be separated from him, and send him to a leper colony. But David says, he's overwhelmed, he says, I'm, con I'm consumed 
by the blow, by the smack, by the strike of your hand. Then he goes on and he says, But I understand that the strike of your hand was disciplinary. With rebukes you correct, you admonish man for iniquity, for sin, for lawlessness. David reveals the problem here of sin and judgment. He's aware of the transitoriness of life. He, he understands that the brevity of life is intensified by sickness. He understands that his health is gone. He says, I'm nothing more than a shadow or a vapor. Lord, take my sin from me and lift this plague. See, life is a passing uh, moment in the landscape of eternity. And when illness or weakness comes, it reminds us of our mortality. And I believe that is good for us. It is good to remember how short life is. Second, sin often leads to sickness. Again, that's not every sickness is not the result of sin. We need to be very careful. Do not be Bildad or Elihu or any or uh, Zophar or any other of Job's friends who wanted to sit down and and determine that he was sick because of whatever sin he had committed when Job had done no sin. And I think as Christians we're so very quick that when we see somebody in that that's sick. Our initial reaction, oh man, I wonder what kind of sin they committed. And though I'm often, I'm, I often laugh to myself because there are some people that they, they look at certain people and they, they, they assume, well, well, they're sick because of their sin. But they look at other people who are sick, maybe worse or maybe the same, and oh man, you know, wonder why they're being afflicted. And I, and I laugh because, well, wait a minute, why do you think this person's sickness is related to sin but not that person's? Well, I know that person's got a sin, but that other person, they're, they're a good person. How do you know that? You don't. And because we don't know the thoughts and the intents of an individual's heart, only they and God know that, we cannot sit back and critique whether or not someone is sick because of sin. Should you as the sick person determine that? Absolutely. But what our responsibility to do is not be like David's friends or Job's friends. Our responsibility should be to come alongside of them and encourage them and pray for them. But if sickness has come into your life because of sin, know this, that when the sin is forgiven, the root of that ill is going to be broken. We also see that David understood that sickness is viewed as a sign of judgment, but... Sickness can also be a sign of Satan's work. Think of Job again. Satan goes there before the Lord and says, Listen, the only reason Job honors and obeys you is because you have blessed him. Let me afflict him and he'll curse you. And so God allowed Satan to afflict, to cause Job to be sick. Also, sickness may come simply because of the fall. You know, think about when the blind man came to Jesus to be healed and the disciples, they were aghast because, Lord, what kind of sin did his parents commit that he was born blind? And uh, Jesus replied, nothing. They didn't commit any sin that resulted in their son being blind. And again, there's that thinking of man that, you know, oh, well, his parents must have done something because why would their child have this issue? You know, and I often think of parents who have children that are born with 
various kinds of, of, of handicaps and so forth. And, you know, I, I can only imagine what it must be like to come amongst a bunch of believers and have believers sitting off to the side discussing, oh, I wonder what they did. I wonder what sin they committed, that, that, that their, their son or daughter was born with this, blah, 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 blah. Man, not, not only cruel, but how sick can you be? Well, obviously, as sick and cruel as the disciples. And Jesus had to admonish them and correct them. No, this man's parents did nothing. This man himself did nothing. He was born blind in order that I may be glorified. You know, sometimes God allows sickness to come into our life because of the, of the curse of sin in the world, but he also does it so that he can do a tremendous work in our midst. You know, because sin has come into our lives, God's wrath is upon us, and we need to cry out for deliverance. We need to come to Christ and receive forgiveness and realize and understand and accept that he has bore the wrath of God on the cross and that once we're in Christ where there is no longer any condemnation for, uh, for those of us that are in him, Romans 8, 1. You know, the words of Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, the Holy Spirit anointed him to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to deliver the captives, give sight to the blind, liberate the oppressed, announce the acceptable year of the Lord. And now you can understand why David said, my hope is in you. Our hope should be in him as well. Because he's preached it to the poor. He's preached the gospel to us. He, the brokenhearted, he's healed us. The captives, he's delivered us. The blind, blind by sin, he's healed. The oppressed, oppressed by Satan and sin, he's liberated. David now holds a sorrow before the Lord. He's pleading with him to speak. Do not be silent at my tears. Formerly David was silent, but now he's saying, God, don't, God, don't you be silent. Look at my tears. Hear my cries. He says, I'm nothing more than a stranger and a sojourner. A stranger was an alien, an immigrant. A sojourner was an alien or an immigrant who was passing through the land. And in Exodus chapter 12, verse 48 and 49, Israel was instructed to make provisions for both groups. If you, have, if you have an immigrant or refugee who comes and stays within your borders, take care of them. If you have one that's just passing through your borders, take care of them while they're within, within your borders. That's Exodus 12, 48 to 49. And David's now identifying himself with them. I don't have a home anymore. I don't have a people anymore. The psalm concludes with a plea for God to take his gaze from David. Look away from me so my strength may return. Now, normally, you know, we want God to look upon us, but in this case, you know, he, he didn't want God's gaze of judgment upon him. Lord, turn your wrath, turn your judgment away from me. Because if you don't, I'm going to be a dead man. Psalm 39 is a reflection on human life. It's a reflection on the passing nature of life. And when sickness comes, and it comes upon all of us in one time or another, but when it does, it really uh, gives us a sense of not only the shortness of our life, but also the fallenness of the world we live in. And in spite of the shortness of life and the fallenness of the world, our hope still needs to be in God. And so I would challenge you not only to get a proper worldview of life, of life's futility and... Uh, its brevity um, of what the goal of life should be about, you know, how fleeting time is. But I would also challenge you then to determine to make what time God has given you count for him. Put your hope in the Lord and then live your life 
to its fullest by glorifying him with every moment and every breath. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for this psalm that you've laid before us. Father, we all face chastisement because of our sin. But at the same time, Lord, we're thankful that you chasten us because we know it's out of your love for us. And Father, like David, we cry out to you. Forgive us. Father, help us to know the shortness of life. Not to overwhelm us, not to depress us, but rather to help us to understand and want to make each and every day count for something in eternity. To count for something for you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone listening whose goal in life has just been simply to amass more and more wealth. Father, open their eyes to see the futility in that. Because, Lord, they can spend their lifetime amassing and be gone in a moment. And somebody else will spend their fortune. I pray that, Lord, they'd be more consumed, all of us be more consumed with laying up treasures in heaven where we'll have an eternity to enjoy them. And so, Father, we pray these things in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.